Welcome to Design Your Life, a podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. Today's guest is one of the most well-known creative directors in the fashion industry. He worked alongside Sir Paul Smith for 25 years, constructing the unique look and feel of the iconic brand. At just 25 years of age, he set up his own creative agency, alongside his friend and fellow St. Martin student, Sandro Sedano. Over the course of 20 years, the pair worked extensively across fashion and lifestyle brands, such as Levi's, H&M, River Island, and Neil's Yard. Now with a focus on his own creative agency, Aboud Aboud, he's been working with a variety of fashion agencies across editorial, advertising, and film. Welcome to Design Your Life, Alan. Thank you. So cool to catch up here in London. We caught up, we catch up every time I come over, uh, which is always nice. And it's so cool to, you know, catch up with you and see what you've been doing and, and the, the great work that you're always doing and the various directions that you've been taking. Um, I just think for the, for the listeners, it'd be really great to kind of catch up a, around your, you know, how it all began for you, you know, St. Martin's and how that all panned out. Yeah, I came, I came to London in 1986. Actually, yeah, I, I shouldn't really tell anyone that now. <laughs> uh, in 1986 to St. Martin's and went on the graphic design course, which was based between Longacre and uh, Charing Cross Road. So I was really lucky to actually grow up in London, in Soho and Covent Garden. So I was there for three years, and at the end of that three-year stint, we had our degree show, as you do, and um, Paul Smith, the company, was based in the road behind on Floral Street, and they were looking for somebody to work on some of their projects. And they were very small then. And uh, the head buyer came to St. Martin's and interviewed, well, called five of us for an interview. But what she didn't realise, the five people that she'd called for an interview all lived in the same house. <laughs> That's good. And basically rang the same number five times over oh a period of three days. And uh, called us all in to kind of have an interview. That must have caused, caused a lot of confusion in the house. Uh, it was okay. It was all right. Uh, we, had, we had one friend over, a, a very good friend of mine called... Um, Perry Hayden Taylor, who runs a design company in London called Big Fish, hmm. and uh, he happened to be staying with us at the time, and he took one of the calls and uh, managed to blag an interview as well, even though he wasn't actually asked. <laughs> <laughs> so it could have been very different. And then, yeah, we we started what we the Royal We. I worked with Paul uh, two or three days a week and needed to kind of get some other work to kind of fill the week out. And I ended up working at a very small studio um, in Marylebone uh, on iMagazine and Blueprint magazine. So I was kind of surrounded with two great designers. There was a guy called Stephen Coates and Simon Esterson. Mm. Simon pretty much has designed every newspaper and magazine yeah. in the world. And we had an editor called Dan Sidgick, who's now the, the head of the Design Museum in yeah. London. So it was a really great kind of time. So I was kind of having half the week learning about art direction and fashion, which I had no clue about. And then the other half of the week in a very serene, quiet studio, uh, learning the kind of skills of editorial design. So did, you, did you at that time know how brilliant that op those two opportunities were? No idea. No idea. Wow. Um, because you're kind of you're a kid and you're just kind of winging it. Everyone's, everyone's winging it. Hmm. And it was a hustle. It was like in the middle of a big recession. Mm -hmm. Nobody could get any design jobs. And the whole point of me moving to 
to London was I had started my degree course in NCAD, which is the National College of Art in Dublin. And at the time, there was no chance in hell of getting any jobs in Dublin. So the inevitability was you either emigrate to London or America. So I just decided to go to, to London and actually kind of get in before you had to start looking for jobs. So mm. it worked out in a much nicer way. So in that time, you went from being, you know, brand new, straight out of art college, to like 30 years of working with Paul Smith yeah. on, 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 I guess, everything that he did. Yeah, from 89 till around 2015, we pretty much did everything. Every creative output for the brand. Um, we kind of became the brand guardians. We were in really odd situations most of the time whereby we were the creative agency, but also acting client. You know, we kind of got so familiar and well used to the brand ethic and ethos that we were trusted to kind of basically run the show for him um, during yeah. that time. So I guess I forgot to mention that, that you actually were and are still a boot and a boot. We've had very... A variety of different names over the over the period. Um, I had a I had a business partner for the for the first um, part of my career, who was a photographer, uh, a guy called Sandro Sedano. Um, and then after Sandro left, um, we had a company called Abud Creative. And then subsequent to that, we started a company called Abud and Abud, which originally was um, with my cousin Simon Abud, who at the time had just come out of the advertising world and was a commercials director and we were collaborating on projects. Um, so we ran a boot and a boot for a few years together and then he moved on to film direction and I stayed running a boot and boot and that's kind of where we are now. Mm. So yeah, it's been a long road. Um, what, what, did, what did it teach you working so closely with Paul? Uh, humility, manners politeness it, like apart from the creative work it was um so you had to do a complete character change <laughs> thank you <laughs> um no he like he you know he he's a pain in the ass and i tell him he's a pain in the ass at times but um most of the time you know he comes out with thousands of ideas and like most kind of great creatives maybe hundreds of them are awful um but you know the kind of output was was amazing the energy was amazing, but also he kind of taught me a lot of business sense. Mm. Um, you know, never to kind of get carried away, uh, always to be respectful to people on the way up because you definitely see them on the way down. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of the, the business acumen that that he kind of gave me was was quite incredible. Um, and we still, you know, we're still in touch on. You know, we text every couple of weeks together just to kind of see how things are. Was it cool to see how hands-on he is and was with the business? Yeah. like that's quite uh, rare, isn't it? He knows where the light bulbs are, basically. <laughs> he, like he, he has a meticulous eye across the whole business, uh, which is his strength and downfall, in a way. I think the, the big problem is Paul willing to kind of delegate, mm. um, um, which is... I can understand running my own company. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a really tough thing, um, but we, yeah, we had a, we had a great working relationship. Um, we still work with with Paul Smith. We do all of the advertising for Paul Smith Japan, mm -hmm. and we have done since its um, inception. I think it was 1991, which they created a brand called Paul Smith Collection. So we've been doing the advertising and the design work for that mm. um, uninterrupted, which has been quite cool. Mm. 
but you know, Paul, so Paul doesn't get involved in those. Uh, he oversees it. Um, th there is a there is a cr there is a creative designer who works solely on Paul Smith collection. Mm -hmm. uh, a guy called Derek Morton, who's just the most incredible tailor, and has always worked on on the collection. And Paul trusts him implicitly, so he runs that mm. that kind of line. Um, but yeah, no, it's been it's been a, a good a good learning curve and um, I'm forever grateful to have mm -hmm. had the chance to work with him but as you say you have no idea when you're a 22 yeah, year old yeah. in terms of what you're <clears throat> what you kind of uh, are exposed to and that took you into I'm obviously big in terms of fashion working in art direction and fashion I mean, how did you get into like art directing photography because that's something that's not everyone's capable of doing no idea well, you studied typography <laughs> Typography, and then was, you're directing. Yeah, typography was my was my my major at St Martin's. I had no interest in fashion at the time, um, and you just kind of fall into it. Really, you kind of you, suddenly you're on you're on a shoot with a photographer, and the photographer's asking for the concept, the direction. Is this right? Is that right? And you just kind of get on with it. Um, mm. The thing is, like, it's weird. You. you Having had children who question your career incessantly from year whatever um, to try and understand what you actually do and to try and explain what an actual art director does when they kind of go, well, Dad, you do actually nothing. <laughs> um, I, my it. rationale is it, you kind of you are the catalyst. You're, def, you're you are responsible for bringing the right team together. Mm -hmm. So you get the right photographer. Then in turn, that photographer will will kind of pull in his team and you'll pull in the right hair and makeup people, the right stylist and you kind of craft a really nice concept together. Yeah. So it is like your the head your head is on the block in terms of um in terms of making sure that the shots are right and they're on brief because you're spending a lot of money most of the time for clients and um the pressure is real and you kind of go through a whole gamut of emotions on a on a shoot day going from oh actually that's quite nice and then you get introspective and you question your self-worth and wonder whether you're doing the right thing but ultimately you know it's up to you to kind of curate a great set of images for, mm. over a period of time it's interesting I, I was um, I don't remember this but I was 2000 I think it was I was asked to become art director of Japanese Vogue and I flew my family to Japan lived there for a year mm -hmm. and was helping kind of build the I guess the look of the publication uh, understand the typography and was also photography mm -hmm. and I remember I mean I, I had no experience in fashion before mm. you know and I remember going on these shoots and just photographers you know or the editors would come to me with a polo and say what do you think of this and I go I have no idea <laughs> you know I have no idea is it good or not it looks good like, I mean that is it's a real skill that you don't just you know, learn overnight. You pick it up. You pick it up. Mm. I, like I've al I've always loved photography, and we had an, an amazing um, tutor at St Martin's. There was a there was a guy called Dermot Goulding, and Dermot was from Dublin. He emigrated here in the early fifties, as most people did from Dublin. He started working at the Royal College as a photo technician. He taught people like uh, Gilbert and George. Wow. When he went to St Martin's, he was. Um, taught Sade the singer taught you know Johnny Rotten came in you know all these kind of people came through his his um, mm -hmm. stable Dylan Jones who's the editor of GQ magazine was there mm -hmm. um, and Dermot was was a great kind of mentor and he kind of showed us these amazing photographers you know that you would never have heard of like say Joseph Kudelka or whoever 
and because I was Irish and from Dublin, um, Dubliners and Irish people have a mafia, so he looked after me. Um, you nice. know, we got preferential treatment in the dark rooms, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that that's where I kind of got the eye to appreciate good photography. I'm not a good photographer myself. Did you um, come from a creative family? Uh, no. No. Like Somebody asked me that a while ago and... I'm sorry, not original. No. <laughs> My answer was, um, no, not really. I think the what kind of sparked it off was... Um, my parents collected art. They, you know, they, they literally would go to exhibitions and they would buy a couple of paintings um, every couple of months and they, they kind of built up a big art collection. Um, when we were kids, there was a really amazing portrait artist in Dublin called George Colley. Um, my parents paid for him to paint our portraits over wow. a period of... Um, I don't know, that must have been six or 12 weeks. We'd go and have sittings every week. He'd give you a bag of sweets and you'd sit there. Um, so they're all in, our, in my parents' house. And again, my children usually post them on, on uh, their um, chat rooms with uh, devil's horns coming out of my picture. Added <laughs> in. Um, but yeah, so that was interesting. And then um, I think the only other thing is my sister, um, Irene, uh, had a great love of music and uh, she had these great great posters I remember of Jimi Hendrix she, Jimi Hendrix was her hero the only time that Iron actually has ever come to London was to see Jimi Hendrix back in the 70s so I think mm. the music background and the art is where it kind of came from I, I was the youngest of four so by the time when I was finishing school uh, I, had, I also had a great art teacher in, in my school in Belvedere in Dublin and again, he was, wasn't just an art teacher. He would kind of bring in records. You could play records. He had a great... And I remember he used to love bands like um, Average White Band mm. and there was a great African band called Aussie Bisa. And he just kind of conjured up this great interest in art. And I decided... And, well, he persuaded me in my final years to start putting a portfolio together just for whatever. Mm. And um, I, wanted to, I wanted to do architecture originally. Mm -hmm. And um, I interviewed for architecture school in Dublin, but didn't get the grades. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of faced with this um, this uh, dilemma in a way, in terms of what to do. Well, actually, it wasn't a dilemma. I had no other no other options. <laughs> I um, I got I got offered a place at, at NCAD in Dublin uh, on the foundation course, and because I was the youngest of four, my parents got yeah whatever do do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. We're done. You know, we've had our battles with with the kids and. Mm -hmm. um, and they let me do it, and I, you know, I'm forever grateful to them because obviously, to this day, they don't know what I do, as I'm sure um, yeah, yeah. your folks kind yeah. of eternally question what you're doing. Um, so I went to NCD, did my foundation, um, and in those days, you really did a foundation. I don't know what you, whether you know now here, a yeah, foundation is three months. Is it really? You you start Oof. in September, and by Christmas, you have to decide your your speciality, which was insane. Yeah, we had a year. Did you have a year too? Yeah. A year, a year of fashion, textiles, Everything. animation, graphics, yeah. part design. Amazing. So we finished. I finished my my foundation and I decided I wanted to, to do visual communications, which is what the title of the course was. Yeah. So I did a year there. It was a really nice bunch of people, but um, very pedestrian, the course. And I basically could have just slept, walk, slept walked my way 
through my degree. And luckily there was a girl who was two years ahead of me, a girl called Susie Godson, who had applied to St. Martin's and got into St. Martin's and went to St. Martin's and she was going, come on, it's easy. So, um, again, my parents were really fine, happy for me to Mm -hmm. go and do the interview. I I think I remember my dad was over in London on business anyway, so I went with him, did my interview, came back and and got in. Um, So that, that summer... I went to America for the first time properly. I, did, I lived in in Boston for four months, just hanging out, and then went to London and started in St. Martin's and literally knew nobody in London apart from... I had one cousin who lived here. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, Sunday afternoon flight from Dublin to London, and I rocked up in the halls of residence in Battersea, thinking, what the hell? You know, it's just scary bunkers, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then just kind of just got into it and, and luckily got a great group of friends very, very quickly at St. Martin's and, and a lot of them are really, really close friends still now. Mm. So, it, yeah, it was a great time. And again, you kind of look back and you kind of go, wow, that was an amazing time. Mm. But you didn't you didn't think of it at the time. You just thought everyone kind of had an upbringing in Soho for three years. Yeah, it was funny. I was talking to someone yesterday about this. I, I, I look back this week I was walking around the Downs near my parents' house in Sussex and I thought, oh my God, those 10 years that I was in London as Frost Design mm-hmm. were, I didn't realize how good it was, you know, I didn't realize how good the opportunities were, yeah. the energy, etc., the team I had and all that. And the people, yeah, the people. Yeah, the people yeah. and what was going on and, and like what you said, but the various people you're working with have moved on to do great things mm-hmm. in their career as well. Just talk about um, fast tracking from, you know, obviously college days your experience at Paul Smith then and Blueprint and then you know like 30 years of working with Paul 2015 um, I mean that was the, that was kind of the, your main client I think wasn't it for quite some time yeah it was and our major it was kind our of major. a it ended the relationship ended and then you obviously had to think about what did you do next yeah it was a, it was a really it was a tough one it was literally it, as with most fashion brands the issue of succession comes up also when you have a a founder whose name is above the door so mm. um, at the time Paul was th- needed to think about succession and had promoted one of his designers to be the kind of fashion creative director and as is normal anyone who kind of comes into a job the first thing they do is fire the people around you mm-hmm. um, so I I was the first one to kind of get the bullet um, which was pretty tough Um in terms of just, you know, having had a relationship with Paul for such a long time, I think in retrospect, uh, he felt quite guilty about it, but I totally respect his decision to, mm-hmm. to do that. But luckily, we um, we continued, I think we had uh, we had a six-month notice, so we continued and we pretty much did one of our best pieces of work during that time, which was quite surreal. Um, which was a which was a travel suit called a suit to travel in, and, mm. and it was a whole it was a whole concept around the freedom of movement in in tailoring, and we produced a really lovely campaign. Um, but luckily, we continued staying working with Paul Smith Japan um, throughout that period. So yeah, it was a good tra- it was a transition, but also you do question your ability to get that next job, and mm. I'm sure you know you've gone through hard times with your yeah, business yeah. and you kind of go my god I've got nothing to fall back on yeah yeah no it's um, it's, it's interesting because I mean I've talked to a lot of designers and 
you know, we all go through that kind of feast or famine situation. And yeah. when you're, you know, when you're busy, it doesn't seem to be a problem but apart from being busy. Yeah. Uh, but then when you, when you have less opportunities in front of you, it's actually quite a scary moment in time. You go into survival mode mm. um, and you just, you hustle and you, you know, you go out there and you, you try and get the work. And so luckily, yeah, we, I picked up some, some other, um, pieces of fashion business uh, which didn't work, weren't great but you know they they paid the bills mm -hmm. for a time and then I went into I'm um, I was really interested in in mainstream advertising I always have been I, I worked with BBH for six or seven years on the Levi's account as a consultant um, and I never had any problem flitting between working as a designer in a creative agency and working in the evil world of advertising as it was kind of <laughs> perceived at that time. Yeah. Um, so after, after a year, um, I consulted for, um, an agency here called gray, gray London, um, and ran there, the creative work for Hugo Boss fragrances, um, predominantly. And that was a wonderful time. I had a, a, a fabulous time working with a team of great, creative great account people great planners great business partners and um we produced you know a few really lovely commercials celebrity based commercials um clients were tough it was p old the old png world and at the same time png had just sold the business to coty so we were kind of in this really weird transitional time um so it was it was a really tough time but we we had a, we bonded as a team kind mm. of beautifully um, so that was that was a great kind of couple of years. Um, so all that experience you had at Paul, with Paul Smith it was obviously beneficial for that. Yeah, that and also with with uh, with BBH, um, oh, yeah. you know, I was accustomed to the kind of, that kind of world. So we did that, and then obviously after Coty took over the business, they took a lot of the work in house. So I stopped um, my consultancy with Gray, and then uh, started another consultancy with another ad agency who should be nameless um, which was a total antithesis to um, to my experience with Grey mm -hmm. um, so I did that I consulted on a couple of beauty brands for them and then after you got the hell out because it just was the most dismal depressing experience of my oh, life geez. yeah it was yeah pretty bad um, so then at that stage after still keeping the studio running and juggling this this kind of alter ego of, of working in the, in, in the advertising world, I just decided that I just had to throw myself back into the studio full time. So after that that last stint um, consulting at an agency, I back, went back into the studio full time, um, and then built up a whole kind of new range of clients, and mm -hmm. um, we're kind of there at the moment. Um, some fashion. Uh, our main clients are one is a is a video games company um, who we've been working with on a couple of projects for the last four and a half years um, who are based in New York and um, also we work for a wine asset management company a company called Fine and Rare who have amazing aspirations to kind of go into the to the luxury world not just wine and spirits but other other areas so we've been working with them for about two years mm. um, so all of my expertise of working in fashion and beauty and luxury 
it, it translates. Mm. So you kind of become a bit of a chameleon after mm -hmm. a while. Um, so that's been really, it's been an interesting ride in terms of doing that. But tell me about Veni magazine. Veni is, um, it's a biannual magazine, which is, uh, the, the publication is based out in L.A., and uh, it is part owned by a very old friend of mine called Warren Narana, who um, was a fashion designer in London, um, who, who I've known for a very long time. He was Alexander McQueen's original assistant back with Sarah Burton in the day. So I've known Warren through very many guises over the years. Um, he emigrated to, to America quite a few years ago to work in publishing and in in media as a kind of creative consultant and at the time he was back in London maybe two and a half years ago um, talked to me about this project and wondered whether I'd be interested in in creative directing this this magazine that he'd recently acquired called Veni and basically the concept of it it's uh, it's all about championing uh, women who kind of conquer Hollywood so all of the photo shoots are female um, female uh, subjects of women who were on the cusp of success in Hollywood, you know, about to, about to break uh, in terms of new new movies or new contracts, etc. So um, it's kind of given us total freedom. Warren gave us a com complete kind of creative control mm -hmm. of the shoots. Um, he splits the shoots between LA and London, and we do all of the London shoots. And um, another team do the LA shoots. Are there female photographers as well? Um, weirdly, we haven't we haven't had female photographers because um, I think schedules didn't work out. There's one girl who's a very old friend of mine, Elaine Constantine, is, is mm -hmm. slated to do some stories, but it, she had been quite busy. And um, frankly, the, the kind of the, the the female roster is is quite slim mm -hmm. in in. Um, in London, um, and also added to the fact is it's an it's editorial, which means we've got no money. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I kind of morally, it, it's always a very fine line to kind of tread, in terms of asking people to shoot for you, but also telling them that there's actually no money in in in, mm. in the magazine to, to pay. What does Veni mean? Veni is I came. Okay. Veni Vidivici, I came. I saw. I went. Ah, okay. Um, Veni Vidivici was the original name of the magazine, which would, when Warren bought it, uh, it was abbreviated to Veni. Um, so yeah, it, it's been amazing. So starting in 1989 on Blueprint magazine, and now in 2019, I'm on a magazine again. So it's it's kind of a, kind of a, a full circle in terms mm -hmm. of what we've been doing. But also, it's pulled in all the expertise. So obviously. We do all the fashion shoots. We pull in all the styling. We choose the photographers. We choose the locations, etc. So, it's very much doing as I, what I've always done, but in a different guise. I guess with you directing that, you you can pull in a lot of favors as well, a lot of photographers and stylists and stuff. You yeah. wouldn't normally do it for uh, if yeah. there's no money involved. Totally, yeah. Um, it's good exposure for everybody. It's like, yeah, it's exposure, but it's also it's actually the opportunity to do nice work. Mm -hmm. probably more importantly the opportunity to do nice work so like one of my main kind of photographic contributors is Rankin who I've known like we started mm. at the same time Rankin was at the old LCP um, when I was leaving St. Martin so we've been kind of we've followed a kind of a parallel path in terms of what we've been doing so he's been great to me 
in terms of doing shoots, etc. And another old friend, Julian Broad, um, he's done sh a shoot with me and will do some going forward. But also, yeah, there's, there, there's quite a few, but also the photography world is so decimated in London now. Uh, not a lot of them have the kind of financial opportunity to kind of to do a lot of editorial. So it's it's a very different world now. So what what's happened there? Because I, I hear that a lot uh, as of you know last couple of years that it's really quite grim for a lot of photographers. I think obviously with the onset of social media, uh, a lot of clients look to people's Instagrams and probably source a lot of quite cheap photography through up and coming photographers, students, etc. And, and they've kind of they've really kind of cut a hole. In, in the marketplace, uh, whereby only the the super successful um, guys are, are are regularly working, mm. and the the young upstarts, so the middle the middle ground, uh, is pretty much no longer working. Mm. So it's it's a really really troubling time mm. where you see a lot of way more talented people than me struggling mm. um, creatively and financially. Um, so it's tough. It, it is. It's a really. It's a tough business. Well, you, you're the first person that came to a podcast with a whole bunch of gifts. So I thank you for that. <laughs> Lovely to see your um, Vinnie magazine in the flesh and your book above all else, which is um, your aerial photography that you've been taking this. That was me flying back and forth from yeah that, client meetings. That was the yeah. That was the one kind of nice thing about flying. Um, before Bin Laden decided to make it really difficult for us all. Mm -hmm. um, I was working in Helsinki uh, quite a bit for uh, an advertising agency called Hassan and Partners and um, early digital times. So I bought myself a digital camera at Heathrow and started playing around with it on the plane and just found it quite interesting to kind of have that kind of peace, um, you know, pre-Wi-Fi, pre-everything. And, mm -hmm. and it just, it was, it was my kind of downtime. Mm -hmm. And um, I was lucky enough to build up a nice body of work, um, which then I published um, with a Japanese printer based out in Osaka um, and had a couple of exhibitions. So, yeah, it's it's just nice having a kind of an outlet to something mm. that isn't necessarily commercial or commercially driven. And we often talk about uh, designers... You know, having an opportunity to have some skin in the game on projects, and you brought a beautiful candle with you just now from Low, the Low brand you created. Mm -hmm. um, that's exciting. Tell me about that. That uh, basically a, a, a mutual friend, um, actually, strangely, from Paul Smith, introduced me to my business partner, my now business partner, um, Tracy Longworth. And at the time, she had a pre-existing candle brand and wanted to kind of reinvent it and asked me would I be interested in kind of creating an identity for her. So we started into that path and uh, the work grew and grew and the percentage of the business kind of slowly kind of came over to my side um, very kindly from Tracy. Um, and it became kind of clear that we really, she needed a lot of good creative work and uh, probably a good foil to the to the creations of the candles that she was working on. She's an architect by trade, so it was quite a nice nice kind of balance of um, of careers to kind of collide. So we, we started maybe two and a half, over two and a half years ago 
on this project and uh, we finally launched it last week so um, we've got a range of nine candles in the in the kind of uh, debut season um, and it is a total kind of wake-up call as a creative to suddenly having your own brand it's no longer the fact that you kind of go there you go there's your identity there are your guidelines thanks very much see you later yeah good luck uh, you kind of go okay so like on Sunday night we launched the website at about 10 o'clock and I'm kind of go well what do I do now <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's a, it's a, again, it's a hustle. It's just, it's nice having a product that you can kind of go around. It's like a calling card. It's, yeah. you, you know what it's like. It's, if you've got a magazine or you've got some, a book that you've just published, yeah. it's a nice conversation piece. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's also allowed you to take all of your learnings from the fashion and luxury world to create a, an entry level luxury product. Um, but then, you know, we're based here in Broadwick Street around the corner from Liberty. You walk into the ground floor of Liberty and there's like a, plethora of candle brands so we're not underestimating the challenge but it's it's interesting to create something yourself mm. as a designer and what so it did make you treat it differently in terms of you are you just focusing far more on the success of uh, what you're doing i don't think it, it no it didn't not differently so i suppose that that would denigrate my my clients um i think it, it just you i think you questioned yourself a lot more you'd go through periods of going, wow, okay, I don't actually have someone to say no to me other than my business partner. Um, normally, as you know, when you've got a client meeting, the client sometimes goes for the things that they like and yeah. you don't like as much. They create the parameters. And you get on with it. But this is very much kind of going, you're in a in an echo chamber with yourself most of the time. So I think that I sp you question yourself more. You question the work that you're doing more. So how do you know it's right? You've just got to go on a gut instinct. I guess sales would be. Sales would be, <laughs> sales would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very early days. Um, the reaction that we've had has been has been great. Um, we've got a couple of stockists already in London, and we are starting in Japan in November, being distributed, um, which will be really interesting. So again, I don't want to kind of get it into just every place that sells candles I think I, I would be very precious about it in terms of where what space it occupies so mm. I think you've got, you know, you've got a vested interest mm. obviously now in a project and you just want to make it work yeah I mean I've done that a few times on projects and I think it's uh, yeah it definitely changes your approach it did for me anyways mm. I just go oh this is interesting I've, I've actually got an opportunity instead of getting fees I got shares mm -hmm. Um, and therefore I have more of an interest of in a long-term success and staying on the journey with that brand mm -hmm. as opposed to, as you say, just kind of designing it, doing your best job mm -hmm. at designing it and then handing it over, yeah. which I often get frustrated with anyways because I enjoy the maintaining the relationship and staying on the journey with the client. Mm. It's very prevalent now, particularly in London, to to accept creative jobs in lieu of collateral in the business um, but smaller studios like ourselves we can't we can't do that regularly because you just you know you need you need, need the money. cash yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we were lucky that this this was self-funded um, from within so we, we didn't have to kind of take that risk mm. overtly like obviously the creative work and the creative time um, 
has been accrued and and hopefully will accrue financially with um with the sales mm. so it's yeah it's it's been a very interesting interesting kind of journey so far i know when i i started out i was doing a lot of projects for probably either no money or very little money i think i still am <laughs> <laughs> well clients try it on don't they they go ah oh, I haven't got much money, but it's a really nice project. Or and I stick with us, and we'll get you something yeah, really yeah, big. It's gonna be yeah. really big if you stay on the yeah. journey with us. Mm. Um, or often you go, you know, how much have you got? You know, and then of course they're gonna say, I had a lot less than what they probably have. Mm -hmm. um, but we fall fall about fall for it time and time again. It still comes up. The thing, yeah, the, the 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 horrible thing about our business is the fact that you don't get remuneration in a royalty. Um, the way probably that product designers would product designers do yeah um, but you know like say whether it be musicians etc I think yeah. it's, it's important if someone if someone uses and reuses your work um, you should get paid for it so everyone seems to have a friend who's a designer that is true or an app or someone crowdsourcing that can do it for <laughs> 99 cents or dollars or whatever it is off you go then <laughs> very frustrating that because of the whole value of what we do isn't yeah. often appreciated. Yeah, I, I think a lot of a lot of clients think that they can do it cheaper uh, internally a lot of the time. But I think the nuances that you kind of bring to the to the table show that you actually have a good thought process and you've got a good aesthetic. Yeah. Um, very much so with a lot of the a lot of the business that that we're encountering now. Have you seen a big change in London in the last you know thirty years that you've been working? Um, old guy. Old guy. Uh, <laughs> it's getting tougher. Um, I've kind of withdrawn quite a bit from what you would call, in inverted commas, the design scene. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I've got my friends who I've who I've known for a long time, like Why Not Associates and other designers mm -hmm. around. But um, I don't. Still I, going strong. Yeah, they're doing. Yeah, they're still doing doing really well. But like the DNADs of mm. this world, which I used to be very, very kind of prominent in, has become so global that it, you know it's not a, a British-based um, creative awards um, company the way it used to be. No. So it's so diluted that it 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 has no identity um, in the way that it used to have. You know, it used to celebrate great. Um, British creativity, yeah. yeah, British art director. So design. I just, you know, I don't even, I don't enter design awards anymore or anything like that because it's just, you know, you've been a judge before and you've seen things going from going out in the first round and bizarrely coming first in the in the second round because you have a conversation with a bunch of of, of jurors and somehow some some shape or form this thing kind of wins. Yeah, someone very persuasive. Yeah. Yeah. Gets the upper hand. Yeah. Who's normally linked to the project? He's, he's, we shouldn't be so cynical because <laughs> DNAD is probably going to listen to this. Exactly. But no. yeah, I, I maybe it's something. I feel the same way. I mean, I feel like we still enter awards for my team and for our clients because it's kind of in, in our industry. Um, it's some form of stamp of approval, approval. Yeah, because yeah. we don't have, you know, we don't have the. Um, the accreditation, I guess, that other organisations have, mm. other industries have. What's interesting about having the candle brand now, you know, I'm I'm now having to become a salesman as well as a, a creative, and you know, you kind of go to these meetings with people, and and you show them the product, and you kind of go, listen, I, 
no idea whether you're interested in it, but this is what it's about, this is the concept, etc. And when people kind of react in such a positive way, it is like an award, weirdly. Mm. It feels like it, you're vindicated um, for having spent that time on something for such yeah. a long time. You've so, created yeah, something so, that connects with people. Yeah, so don't get me wrong, I still have my yellow pencils, which I'm very proud of. But I just, I suppose nowadays my aspiration is not to be um, patted on the back by my peers, but more importantly to be kind of appreciated in, with a wider audience. Mm. So, you know, I'd rather be featured in a broadsheet newspaper than a design magazine, if that mm. makes sense. I just, I just think design needs to be elevated a bit more now mm -hmm. outside of it being too insular. Mm. Um, so yeah it's not being kind of rude about anyone it's just trying to kind of uh, well your, your kind of your goals and aspirations change as you get older yeah it's totally right I had a great chat with Ben Evans who's uh, one of the founders with um, John Sorrell of um, London Design Festival this morning mm -hmm. and just in terms of 16 years or 17 years of them doing that uh, it was kind of cool to hear how how much the industry has changed mm -hmm. uh, for the better in terms of you know kind of more pu more public awareness around design and the potential design and um, you know how design can improve you know businesses lives etc mm -hmm. it's yeah it's definitely assumed more importance but obviously at the moment with uh, England and Britain about to slide off a cliff mm. um, don't know how much importance people are going to place on on design coming from London, or we'll be able to afford design com coming from London with the the mess that's going on. Yeah, because I guess you're working around the world, aren't you? It's cool that you're getting opportunities in New York, LA, etc. Yeah, luckily, yeah, we've got two two clients based in America, um, and uh, you know, obviously one based in Japan, and you know, we we you know, our other main client is based unashamedly in, in London, but they're a global. Uh, asset management company for for high net worth people around the world mm -hmm. who, who buy and sell wines. Um, so we're kind of a we're above it currently, but I, you know, I just don't know what's going to happen to the industry if things go uh, if things go badly wrong in terms of what the kind of government decides to do. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah, it's kind of crazy times um, in London. Yeah, do you think it'd be moving more into like joint ventures or, or are you just going with whatever comes your way um, it, it, it's really the, the, we don't have a business plan in terms of what we want to try and do like it, it is literally year on year on year in terms of what, what we want to do because you can't I don't think you can plan anymore when you're such a small studio you literally just have to kind of go from client to client and, and hope that that kind of um perpetuates mm. or self-perpetuates luckily through fine and rare we've worked we're starting to work with we have been working with a, a distillery launching a product we've launched um, a new geographical spirit so the concept uh, with this company called Bloomsbury Atelier is, is to create a series of geographical spirits so the first iteration is a is a spirit called Cubana which is a, a rum based spirit but infused with Cuban cigars and Cuban ingredients. Um, and again, it's been really interesting creating a brand out of mm. nothing. And we're working on a second iteration of this geographical spirit, which will be a 
sochu-based spirit, Japanese sochu, but infused with um, natural Japanese ingredients, but to give it this kind of evocation of a of a digestif from like a cognac from the um, from from the French cognac area. Um, so we've been lucky to kind of spin off into different areas through other clients. And I think it's always been the way that we've kind of, you know, piggybacked projects and um, I've managed to kind of keep going. So it's been, yeah, I, I think we'll kind of continue doing that way. It sounds like, you know, that, that project you just mentioned, um, was it Fair and Rare? Fine and Rare. Fine and Rare, fine sorry. And rare, yeah. oh. Basically, Fine and Rare introduced me to this brand, which is called... Bloomsbury Distillery. Yeah. And the distillery is based on Lamb's Conduit Street in London. So they've created a new product, which is what they call a series of geographical spirits. That's a geographical spirits. Um, so it's Bring, basically it's a brilliant idea. Traveling the world and and sourcing yeah. amazing ingredients. And do you come up with the names, or do they come up with the names? We come up with the names. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant. Um, so again, isn't it cool to have a client that's got such a great idea in the first place? It's great to have a client who can actually make spirits. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, in all seriousness, it's 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 great. You know, you know what it's like. It's lovely to kind of see something go from an initial meeting to something on a shelf. You know, and still and also still be talking to each other. I might add. Um, are, are you an optimist? Uh, I support Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> So you take you take out what you think. Okay. Is <laughs> uh, it recently, or you've been long term supporter since I was a kid. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been through a whole bunch of. I've been through wins a whole and losses, myriad of emotions. Yeah, but I, it's I believe being a designer, you've got to be an optimist. You've got to be always thinking of the positive opportunity or the the potential in an opportunity. Outwardly, I'm sure things eat away at you internally. Oh, of course, internally. You don't yes. tell anyone. No, no. But, well, um, <laughs> yeah, your own personal um, well-being is critically important as well. Yeah, you have to be, like, if, if you're not an optimist, you'll sink. Mm. I think that's the thing. You just have to assume that things are going to be okay. Mm. Um, and do you know you'll get through it? Do you know when someone comes into your business with an, with an opportunity that can you begin to see the potential of that? Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, I, you see that you're on a journey immediately with that yeah. uh, connection. Yeah, like I think after my last experience uh, consulting for for an ad agency, I said I'm never going to work for people I hate. Mm. I only want to work with people I like. Mm. Um, so I um, consciously, over the last few years, I really have kind of picked the right projects and, and considered the right projects because it's just like life's, life's too short Yeah, you know you just have to actually get on with the people that you're working yeah, with and luckily yeah. the people that I'm working with now are, are a great bunch Yeah. Um, so yeah I've been very very lucky in that respect we talked before about you said uh, very early on you went to New York and you met up with Tibor Kalman a brilliant creative guy yeah he unfortunately was, no longer around but he gave you some great advice he was amazing yeah like that was that was 89 it was, so it was literally just after I finished at St. Martin's and I always I'd, I've always loved and still do love talking to other creatives um, so I managed to get an appointment with him and Tibor had this amazing studio called M&Co um, you know he did these great things you know designed sleeves for Talking Heads he did film titles for Jonathan Demme um, you name it he actually also so amazingly he had his own product line 
you know, back in the 80s. Mm. He had us had watches and he had clocks that went backwards and things like that. And he, he was a really amazing creative. He started off as a visual merchandiser for Barnes & Noble. I think he was a Hungarian immigrant. He did Colours magazine too, didn't he? He went on to do Colours, yeah. I, he wanted me to do that with him. Mm. But at the time he was based in Rome. And I just, oh, Benetton. Yeah, I just I just couldn't I couldn't go over. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I went to meet him and he's, he's quite a gruff was quite a gruff kind of man so he kind of came over he was very busy I met him at the end of the day as you'd always kind of catch these people mm -hmm. and he was going what are you doing you know who are you working with and he said listen one thing you know scare your clients keep them on edge never never make them your friend and always keep them keep them at bay he said and, like, and I was kind of going <laughs> this is kind of weird you know he said, he literally was so adamant, he said, like, just always scare them. Never give them what they want. That was it. That was the last line. Never give them what they want. So I kind of went back to working with Paul Smith, kind of going, okay, I'm not going to really tell you this. But, <laughs> um, but it was quite, it was interesting. And I, I think basically what he was trying to get at was never kind of rest on your laurels and just coast it. Mm. So I was really lucky to to have him as a as, actually as a friend. We we kept in touch and we saw each other quite a bit. We did we did some awards. I think BBC had some design awards, which was televised when, when the Ark was built in Hammersmith, and we did quite a bit of filming there. Mm. So yeah, I, I really got to know him well, and and unfortunately, yeah, he wanted to work with me on colours, and for whatever reason, I couldn't do it. I think it was probably my kids were quite young at the time, and mm. just the the idea of emigrating to to Rome for periods just just didn't work out. No. That's funny, I remember Bob Gill, I went to one of his talks here in London years and years ago. You know Bob Gill was yeah. part of Pentagram. He goes, all clients are assholes. <laughs> you know, which everybody, the whole audience, like 3,000 people just pissed themselves <laughs> laughing. And I'm going, I laugh, but I'm going, ah, I don't agree with that. Mm. So what, what Tiber told you also, I kind of feel like, mm, how do you, because I've, I've always brought my clients in and been very transparent of how we work. Very transparent. Probably to the... Which I believe creates a better outcome for me. But, yeah. but yeah, to, to scare them or to see and think that they're, they're assholes. Um, it's, it's that... I, I, I believe in the, the relationship. And so how do you have a relationship if you kind of approach it in that way? Well, I suppose... I'm not saying you do. With, Maybe you don't approach it in that Paul, way. With Paul, working with Paul, he never wanted... He never came up with the obvious ideas so he was he, you know he was he is a great lateral thinker so he always wanted this lateral approach different type of client too isn't it yeah very different um so i think that's probably that's probably what tibor was getting at was just like don't don't go the obvious way and mm. don't don't kind of give them something that's quite perfunctory mm -hmm. in a way mm -hmm. um but you know, you you see him going off onto onto colours and um, was kind of quite controversial. Mm. Having a picture of a black queen, yeah, yeah, um, it was amazing what he did on that yeah, publication. But he had a great client; he had a wonderful client. Mm. Um, so yeah, so the nice thing about this business was is Toscani actually, the client. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Toscani was the photographer as well. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was all backed by Benetton. Mm. So he was lucky. And I, th I think it's just having a good benefactor mm. to allow you to pretty much do what you want to do. Because you're going to be responsible anyways. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to yeah, take the, advantage of that. Yeah, there's an, air, there's an air of kind of responsibility. 
It is. There is a big difference. I remember when, like, I was doing Big Magazine. Uh, just as I was leaving Pentagram, and and Marcelo out of uh, Madrid just said, "You know, do whatever you want." Yeah, yeah. I, I here's won. a here's a box of photography. Yeah, he and, was great. Yeah, yeah. Do whatever you want. I did about nine issues, and I'm going. I mean, initially, I was so scared, mm -hmm. just because there was no parameters. Yeah. Apart from being the size and one color. Well, a white a white sheet of paper is probably the scariest brief you can be given. Yeah. yeah. You're kind of going, okay, it's tricky. It's so tricky. some people say that you know, having that opportunity like that, where you have a blank piece of paper, is the ultimate brief. I, I just don't find that. I think you need parameters. Yeah. I think you definitely need parameters. Otherwise, and time you, limits. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> you're an artist. You know, yeah, exactly. Otherwise, just go and paint painting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think those kind of those kind of projects are fun. Uh, you know, similarly, what we do with Venny is is pretty much a, a blank sheet of paper. But at least with Warren, who's the editor, uh, you know, he he kind of communicates what he wants to get out of something, mm -hmm. and then you go off and and, and realize that. So it's um, you know you need that kind of foil. You need you need somebody to kind of be the briefer as mm -hmm. it were but um, yeah it, it, it's daunting though at times would you start your own fashion brand mm. I mean you probably could if you wanted to I think I'll stick to candles <laughs> yeah. I, when I, I, I text uh. yeah, Paul, Paul <laughs> hates me <laughs> Because I've always said to myself, Jesus, I can't get a white shirt in your shop anymore. I can't get a black shirt. I've got to have a bloody multi-stripe inside the cuff or I've got to have a gold button or whatever. Like, just give me the basics. Yeah. And I've always said to him, just create a basics range. Yeah. You know, but now you, you look around Soho, Covent Garden, there's, there are, there, every second shop is a startup pop-up. Uh, the 24-hour trouser, the, you know, these kind of capsule collections of just basic staples like trousers, shorts, polos, whatever. They're everywhere. And I'm sure they kind of pollute your Instagram feed on a daily mm. basis. There's just millions of them. So I think the marketplace is really, really saturated. Who, who do you... What, what brands do you like? Clothing-wise? Yeah. Um... Still, 24 hour pants still. is it underpants or trousers <laughs> <laughs> I heard 50% of Americans it... wear their underwear two days running that's Lovely. an interesting fact Lovely. that's why I'm not working in America <laughs> um, uh, my brand I luckily Paul still gives me my discount so I, oh, wow. I'm, I'm kind of good is that good 5% to go. 2% it's a bit more than that <laughs> um, I like actually I love wearing suits still not that I'm wearing a suit today but um, I I Get suits made, oh. which is a nice luxury. And You've got a made. good English, Irish, English style. Irish, yeah. Classic. God, don't say that. Yeah. European. Yeah, European. <laughs> well. Um, so, yeah, luckily, a, a lot of Paul Smith and then a couple of other brands. Mm. But I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Fashion business. The amount of stock you've got to accumulate. Yeah. Actually, that when you say that about all these other pop-up places everywhere same with candles same with aromatherapy the same with coffee shops and restaurants I mean everyone seems to be having a go yeah there's a kind of people feel probably liberated mm -hmm. I was mean, looking at and in, in sitting in the Shoreditch house uh, yesterday and it was literally thousands of people yeah. in there with laptops and mobile phones busily working on mm -hmm. something it, yeah, the, the um, startup culture it's is incredible. huge the startup culture is huge here. Like, obviously, it's saturated isn't it Probably, but like, you know, for every 20 that, that launch, probably two or three survive. So the big boys are going to watch out because you're going to be, you know, well, taken every, out. Every, every 
marketplace is up for grabs. Mm. You know, banks are decimated in, in, in England. There's so many new startup banks that are doing really, really well. Um, estate agents, same thing. You know, you name it, things are under under attack. Um, so much so that the, the high street, the reason why everyone talks about the high street falling apart is the fact that people can't actually sustain uh, a contract, you know, a rent, because they just don't know what, how, how the market's mm. going to be. But now, interestingly, in England, there's... Um, there's a new company called, I think it's called Appear Here, or Appear Now, which is designed to be uh, a commercial version of Airbnb. So you go onto their website and you choose the area that you want to have a store. You want to have a store for a week or a month or a year. You want it to be wow, that's awesome. 600 square foot, which seems to be the way that, that it's going to go. Well, it's interesting just being here this week, walking up and down Oxford Street here, mm -hmm. is a hell of a lot quieter than Shoreditch. Oh, yeah. Shoreditch is like ants. There are people buzzing around, yeah. busy. And mm -hmm. that's like, it wasn't like that 10 years ago. No, no, no. Like, I, but I think Hackney is probably per square foot more expensive than Westminster, mm. I gather. Um, that's interesting. Change. So, yeah, the change is, yeah, you, you walk around, like, you know, I remember when we probably first met was in the 90s in Haverstock Hill do you remember yeah and like there was, wow. there was no there was nothing outside of Soho no Shoreditch didn't exist I know Soho was the heart of the creative heart wasn't it yeah um, and people thought you were crazy if you weren't in Soho mm. whereas now like you know A people can't afford Soho but there are, people are everywhere and also people are working remotely people are working from home people are working from you know communal spaces so it's it's a totally different world so what do you think the future of the design industry is in you know in our area i have no would idea. you encourage people to set up a business set up a team etc i mean how what would you suggest um, if you were starting up today how as a, knowing as what a you designer know, yeah um I think I think having more business acumen at the beginning. I always I've always said it. You know, even when I first came out of St Martin's, the biggest my biggest downfall is not having enough business acumen to mm. realize that you're going to get ripped off by this guy who's promising you the earth. You haven't had any money up front, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've all been there. Yeah. Um, and we still don't learn. But I think, you know, just having a bit of a business sense yeah, totally agree is really that. important. Again, I talked about Ben about that today. Mm -hmm. But he's, he was right in saying that you, you go to design school, you, you go to design school to design, learn to design, learn to be creative. If it was business, mm -hmm. you probably wouldn't. Most designers aren't good at, you know, the academic but, but, side of it. But you do theory. You do art and yeah. creative theory. I don't know why it's not part of the, the mix. It, it doesn't, you yeah, just need a bit of it. Yeah. You know, just like if if I had had someone saying, "Okay, watch out for this, do that, be aware of these pitfalls," then I think you know I would have, I wouldn't have done quite a few of the jobs that I did do in those days. Mm. Um, so I, I, yeah, I I, di I dispute that. I think you still need a bit of that. But also, you walk into the St Martin's that's now in King's Cross. You know, you walk into the lecture theatre which I think is, used to be called the Louis Vuitton lecture, lecture theatre so commerce is very much part of art mm. nowadays so mm. I, I dispute the fact that it shouldn't be taught yeah. in no, art I, schools I, 
I think, I mean, I said, I, I've, it's taken me like, I don't know, 25, I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, me too. It's just like 25 years of being in business, mm -hmm. actually finally being in business towards the end. <laughs> Staying in business. Well, yeah, because you're, you're, yeah. you're shifting from being a creative person to being an owner of a business, mm -hmm. even though you always were the owner of the business. Yeah. Your focus was on the creative mm -hmm. and the business was a byproduct. Money is a byproduct. Yeah. And the, the, that focus is different to someone who sets up a business to make money yeah, yeah. or with an end game because mm -hmm. I don't think any of us had, ever had an end game you start a business because you want to do great work yeah as a designer I don't think you have an end game most designers don't have an end game I remember one of the talks that we went to when we were at St. Martin's it was like there was an amazing um, commercial artist called Abraham Gaines mm. um, he you know he designed these amazing posters back in the day so yeah. he went up on stage and he was probably in his mid 90s at this stage and he was still working and I was going Jesus no this is not going to be me and you know as we're careering through the decades you know there's no such thing as retirement unless you have the, the comfort of having socked a load of cash away or being bought out by a big, big yeah. conglomerate John Hegarty you've obviously worked with well before um, I did a podcast with him a few months ago and I met him again last week, actually. And he, he believes that every creatives have a 10-year shelf life. And obviously not in your case, or not my case, because you kind of... Or his case. Or his case, yeah. <laughs> so so did... hang on. All right, well, um, there, he, there's did, a moment did, did in time. Did he cite any people in, in particular? Uh, well, he didn't mention you. He didn't mention uh, some musicians, artists, etc. He said, said that some people okay, have that moment in time mm -hmm. that they're failing famous for that it's often a a 10-year period. I mean, I believe that you've got to keep... Rein those who don't don't yeah. reinvent, don't keep kind of evolving yeah. and changing. I, I think it's I think that's it's probably true in terms of photography, and I think that's why the, a lot of photographers at the moment are suffering. It's like they, they do have a lifespan. If if they're not careful, there is a, there is a finite lifespan for photography. Um, because if, you know, Sometimes you have photographers who've been very successful for a period of time and they get less successful, but they are bitter mm. about the fact that they're not as successful as they used to be, as mm. opposed to kind of going, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Yeah. You know, and I think the, the great thing about creativity is that you can just, you don't have to pack a bag. You, you, you're either creative or you're not creative. You just have to work out what new world do you want to pop up in. Yeah, yeah. And hope that that works. Well, talking about that, I mean, I, I very believe, very much believe people can design their life uh, or redesign their lives when you know mm -hmm. things don't work. I mean, how do you make it work for yourself? I mean, how do you stay well? And you know, do you have like a fitness regime? <laughs> I Pilates? try. I try to keep. What do you fit? do? Yeah, no, I, I I try to keep fit. I run quite a bit. I try to drink lots of Guinness. I drink lots of Guinness when I'm at home. Um, <laughs> No, I, I I set I try and set goals, and I I try to do half marathons every mm. every year or two. Um, what do you mean try? It's hard to get into a lot of them. Have you done any? Uh, last one I did was last year. Okay, cool. Yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah, I've done quite. I've done loads of half marathons. I've only managed to do one full marathon, which everybody should do in their lifetime if they can stay alive. That's painful, isn't it? It's painful, but it's exhilarating. I did New York. Wow, um, which was amazing. Um, so yeah, so I run, I run, and I train as much as I can. But like, life is busy; mm. it's really busy. I'd love to like, I have a personal trainer, yes, um, but 
he kind of says, well, can you not just kind of stick to these these days? And I'm going, well, like, every week is different. I'm sure it's the same for you. Oh, every man. week is different. Does he charge you for the ones you miss? I'm proactive enough to cancel in advance. Oh, he must hate that. Yeah, no, he's good. What, 24 hours? What is it? Because mine just charges me. No, I like, kind of know. At the beginning of the week, we're kind of going, okay, what are we doing this week? And I'm kind of going, I've got this time. But yeah, no, it's impo- it is very important. Is that, um, is that true? Is, it, is that just avoidance? What? You no, it's not sleep. avoidance. It's not avoidance, definitely. It's kids as well. I can, yeah. bl- I can blame children as well. My, my four-year-old um, keeps me busy. Yeah. So I suppose you have to be, you learn to be, you have to be unselfish when you're, when you have a family. Mm. So you, you think, no, things slip. But no, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best in terms of keeping fit. Um, headspace, uh, my wife keeps me fairly sane. Um, and um, I think, you know, after finishing the majority of the work with Paul four years ago, that was a big kind of time to kind of reevaluate and mm. reassess, and we changed things quite dramatically. Um, we used to have a massive studio in Labour Grove, and we made a decision to kind of scale it down massively. Mm. Um, and now we have a tiny, tiny studio. Um, with a roster of about four or five people that we work with, and uh, that's yeah, your head. You've got a better headspace and a better kind of better quality of life in that respect. Mm. It's a bit, it's harder because you're doing a lot more of the stuff you didn't do. Like you know, you're you're helping out with the the kind of financial side of the business, and you're you're doing stuff that you wouldn't have done mm-hmm. four years ago. Mm. Um, you don't have the luxury of a PA or anything like that, so mm-hmm. you just you just you acclimatize but it has been it's been very therapeutic to kind of scale things down mm, that's cool um, but still have the same output in a way it's that's kind of weird you know you you think because you have less people and less overheads things slow down but you're actually you're as busy as you always have been mm. um, And I, but I think you actually have more time to the to, with your clients and your projects I, I you know during the height of of our old business and studio, I just felt I was in a revolving door. Literally, you'd kind of go into the studio, pick up a presentation, go out, present, go back in, meet mm-hmm. someone for a new business. Mm-hmm. And you just, you didn't, you never had time to kind of create. So you're enjoying it more now that you're more hands-on? Yeah, 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 definitely. Is it slower, slightly slower than before? It's a bit slower. I can kind of dictate, I can dictate my week as, in a lot, in a lot freer way well it sounds like you've designed a better outcome yeah yeah I have no regrets mm. no regrets in that respect at all and no also I don't think you should I don't think like whatever happens happens for a reason mm. um I um I mean I did a I did a talk a few years ago uh, in Dublin uh, for a great design conference called Offset um and I really enjoyed the kind of the experience of actually writing writing a talk and giving a, a talk to a bunch of creatives and I'm in the middle of trying to kind of write a new a new version of that of that talk which is all about failure mm-hmm. because I think it's really important to understand failure mm. um, and um, and embrace it and, and actually accept the fact mm-hmm. that it actually can make you a better person mm. wholly and also creatively we did a talk John actually kindly did a talk at um, 
a festival that we were curating for our, our client, Fine and Rare, a few weeks ago. And he was introduced uh, on stage by a few facts, one being I think he failed all his old levels, he wasn't accepted to art school the first time, he was fired from his first job. And, you know, like, you know, it was all tongue-in-cheek, but it was true. So mm. there is definitely an element that it just, it forms you. Um, and in my office, I've got a, I've got a screen, a framed screen print from a really great um, typographer called Eric Speakerman. Mm. And it just says, Alles wird gut, which is German for everything will be okay. Mm. And I kind of look at it every day and you kind of think, mm, it actually is quite true. Yeah. You, know, you know, you get knocked. Um, but you're going to get up and you, you're going to dust yourself down you're going to get on with it. So I think that's kind of going to, going to go on for quite a while now. Seeing as I've got a four-year-old, that means I've got at least another 20 years in this business. Yeah. Which is wow. daunting. <laughs> <laughs> I might emigrate to Australia and get a job with you. Oh, okay. Well, the job's there. Okay. Um, I'd rec recommend sticking to your... your <laughs> personal trainer's guidance there too yeah yeah i've got a text i've got a text in there <laughs> hey it's been really cool to catch up with you anna yeah, thank you so guys. much good to see you again we'll enjoy see you your soon. remaining time in london thanks buddy okay cheers if you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring please don't forget to review or subscribe